Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you watch or you listen or you look at the news, it's, it's, often, it's often depressing because, as we know, the news is so full of bad news. We, we rarely hear good news. And so when we hear good news, we, we find it sometimes hard to believe. We, we, we want confirmation of it. You think about the, the war in Ukraine, for example. It, it's been going on so long, over a year now, that, that most of us don't really expect it to end anytime soon. If we would hear that the war is over, that there's peace, that the fighting and killing is over, we, we might find it hard to believe. We would want confirmation of it. We'd be looking, is it really true? That, that's how it often is with good news, because we live in a world that's so full of bad news. We, we struggle to believe to believe when the good news, that the good news is really true. And you know that can happen, that can happen with the gospel too. The gospel is really the best news of all. It's the news that there is full and free salvation, peace with God, everlasting life for sinners in, in and through Jesus Christ. It's the news that whoever believes, whoever puts their faith, their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone shall be saved. They shall be saved. What? From what? From the righteous wrath and the judgment of God. They shall be saved from the power of Satan. They shall be saved from their sins, from the guilt of them, from the power of them, and one day from the the, the, the presence of them. By simple faith, childlike trust in the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. That's, that's good news, isn't it? That's the best news there is. That's why we're here today, to hear that news. And yet how many people, how many people struggle to believe it? Also among us. Maybe, maybe you don't believe it at all. You think you see so much hypocrisy in the church, so much saying the right thing but not, not living it out, and you think the gospel is not really that great. It can't be for real. Or maybe you just think it's too good to be true. So you, you refuse to believe it. You refuse to embrace it. You come to church maybe. You do Christian things. But in your heart you think the gospel is basically just a big joke. Maybe others of you hear the gospel and, and you want to believe it. But you, you struggle. Will it really work? Can I really be saved this way by, by simply trusting in Jesus Christ with what I've done with my past? Is it really that simple? Don't I need to do, any, do something? Don't I need to have some, some special, some memorable experience? Or maybe you, you have believed the gospel. And yet sometimes, maybe even today, you've come to church and you're, you're discouraged after a week of battling against your sin. You're struggling with doubt. You've lived in a world all week with the brokenness, seeing the brokenness of the world around you, seeing and maybe experiencing for yourself suffering and pain, seeing the sin all around you and and the sin that seems to be so deeply rooted in your own heart and life still, and it makes you question, is the gospel, the good news of salvation, really for real? Is it really true? Well, congregation, it's in light of this reality at least in, in part, in light of our struggle to believe the gospel that Luke records for us, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. Ten days after the Lord Jesus Christ ascended into heaven. 
The Spirit's outpouring in our text, in Acts 2, verses 1 through 4, and really the whole chapter, but, but especially focusing on the first four verses, is a gospel-confirming event. In a sense, the gospel, the confirmation of the gospel, that's really Luke's primary purpose in everything he writes, both in, in Luke, in his gospel account, and, and also in Acts. We, we know that because in Luke 1, I've said this before here, but, but Luke 1, verses 1 through 4, Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us why he wrote his gospel account. He wrote it so that his readers might know the certainty, the certainty of those things wherein they had been instructed. What does that mean? It means, it means that the main purpose of Luke's gospel account is to establish his readers in faith, in trusting Jesus Christ in the midst of all the temptations, all the struggles, all the doubts, all the discouragements they might have. And the same is true of Acts, because Acts is really the sequel of, of Luke. The beginning of Acts 1 tells us that Luke is writing to the same person he wrote his gospel to, a man named Theophilus. And he reminds Theophilus of his, former, his first book, the former treatise that he made or, or wrote of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. And Acts is really the, the, the continuation of that. It's a, it's a continuation. It's not really so much the Acts of the Apostles, but it's the continuation of what Jesus Christ is doing. And so, so here too, Luke's spirit-inspired purpose with writing Acts is, is still the same, is to establish his readers in gospel faith, whether that reader's Theophilus or whether that reader is you and me. And so we need to remember that as we come also to this account of the Spirit's outpouring in Acts 2. The primary purpose, the primary purpose of Luke's recording this event is to confirm for us the gospel. The good news that all who trust in Jesus Christ, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, as Peter puts it in Acts 1 or 2, verse 21, quoting the prophet Joel, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be safe. The gospel is for real. That's what the Spirit's outpouring on Pentecost tells us. And so it's calling us then to to, to repent of sin and unbelief and doubt and distrust and believe, trust in Jesus Christ, and to continue believing, persevering in faith. And so that's what we hope to learn then with God's help as we consider our text, Acts 2, verses 1 through 4, under the theme, the gospel-confirming event of the Spirit's outpouring. We'll see, first of all, the gospel-confirming timing. Secondly, the gospel-confirming signs. And third, the gospel-confirming results. So first of all, let's consider the timing. Our text makes special mention of when the Spirit was poured out. We see this in verse 1, but I want to read this time the, the whole text, verses 1 through 4, so we get the, the whole event here. So verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting, and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And now here's, here's the, what it's all coming towards, verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
When did this happen? When were they all filled with the Spirit? Is that even important? Well, yes, it is, because Luke tells us, verse 1, he, he tells us it was when the day of Pentecost was fully come. Luke wants us to notice this, because it, the timing, you see, confirms the gospel, confirms the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ, that it's true, that it's real, also for you and me. You say, how so? Well, you need to understand what Pentecost is all about. Pentecost, children, Pentecost was a kind of holiday, a holiday for the Jews, for the people of Israel. I'm sure you all like holidays. We just had one last week, didn't we? Well, Pentecost was a holiday. It had been a holiday for, in Israel for more than a thousand years before this, this happened, when, this, when the Spirit was poured out. Only it was different than, than our holidays. It wasn't like, like, like Victoria Day or, or, or Labor Day or Canada Day or, or even Thanksgiving Day. Because our holidays are not commanded by God. But Pentecost was. It was a holiday that God had commanded. It was really a, a holy day. God commanded Israel to keep this special day when he was giving Moses laws on, on Mount Sinai. It was one of three major feasts. Three major feasts that the, Israelites, the Israelite males had to observe by coming to appear before the Lord. So coming to the temple, to the tabernacle, wherever it was at the time. There was a feast of unleavened bread. That was the first feast. That's when the Passover happened. Then there was a, there was a feast of ingathering at the end of the year when, when everything had been harvested. But, but in between these two feasts, there was a feast of harvest, the feast of the first fruits of their labors, which they had sown in the field. Pentecost was that feast. It happened at the end of the wheat harvest. The Old Testament also calls it the Feast of Weeks because it happened seven full weeks or 50 days after the first Sunday after Passover. On that Sunday after Passover, 50 days before Pentecost, during the, week, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Israelites would offer the first ripe bundle of wheat to the Lord. The first ripe bundle. But at the end of the wheat harvest, they would offer to him at Pentecost the loaves, two loaves they had baked with the flour from the harvested wheat as an as a offering of thanksgiving. And so that, this is when then the Spirit was poured out and, and filled the disciples at this feast. And that's not coincidence. That's, that's, that's gospel confirmation. Because it confirms, it confirms for one thing that Christ Jesus really obtained salvation for sinners. You see, the, the feast congregation, we need to understand the feasts. The Old Testament Jewish feasts, they pointed to Jesus Christ. In Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17, Paul says that the Jewish days, the whole Jewish holy days, were a shadow of things to come. But the body, the substance, the reality is of Christ. So, in other words, the Jewish feasts are the shadow of Jesus Christ. He's the substance. He's the real thing. And when you think about it, when you think about his earthly ministry, you, you see that also. Think about when Jesus Christ died. When did he die, children? When did he die? He died on Passover. He died as a sacrificial lamb of God. That's what you did on Passover. You sacrificed the Lamb of God in commemoration of, of, of God bringing the people, delivering the people out of Egypt. And here Jesus, at Passover, he dies as a sacrificial Lamb of God in the place of sinners. And then what happened on the first Sunday after that, the first Sunday after Passover, that, that Sunday when they would offer the first ripe bundle of wheat, then Jesus Christ, he rose from the dead. 
He rose as the first fruits. That's what he did. And he did it, the gospel declares, for the salvation of sinners. And that's all so wonderful. But the question is, how do we know it's enough? How do we know that by his death and resurrection, he really obtained salvation for sinners, sinners like we are? We know not simply because he poured out his spirit, but because he poured out his spirit at Pentecost, the Feast of Harvest. It's a gospel confirmation, you see, a confirmation that salvation really is through Jesus Christ. It's a testimony that he has fully accomplished everything needed for salvation, that the work is done, that it's complete, that it's finished. He's done it all. All that's left for him to do is to apply it. He has fully accomplished salvation. He has sown, as it were. And now by his Spirit, he will reap the fruits of his labors. He will bring in the harvest. His pouring out his Spirit at Pentecost confirms to us, congregation, that he has really and fully obtained salvation for sinners. Now what does that mean for us? It means there's nothing you need to do. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you even may do to somehow contribute to your salvation. Salvation is through Christ alone. Are you looking for salvation? You must look. You must look. But you must not look to yourself. You must not look to your works, to your labors, or to your feelings, or to your convictions, or to your successes, or even to your faith. You must look to Jesus Christ. His pouring out His Spirit at Pentecost confirms that He has done it all. The timing of the Spirit's outpouring confirms that, but it also confirms something else. It also confirms that Christ really applies salvation to sinners. Pentecost was the feast of harvest. By pouring out his, his spirit then, he's, he's saying, I'm going to bring in my harvest. The harvest is, is his harvest. I'm going to apply salvation is what he's saying. It, it's, it's his harvest. It's not the disciples' harvest. It's not your and my harvest. It's his Yes, he uses people, but he doesn't depend on people. He doesn't depend on his creatures. He is the creator, the almighty God. And so what he does is he fills them with his spirit and he empowers and enables them to be his witnesses. That's why Christ told his disciples in Luke 10 verse 2 to pray, to pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers where? Where? Into their harvest? No, not into their harvest, into his, his harvest. You see, by pouring out his spirit at Pentecost, Christ is underscoring, he's confirming that he really does apply salvation to sinners. To sinners. You see what this means, beloved? It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that you can just live however you want because, well, it's up to him to save you. Some people think that. They, they twist the, the doctrine of the, the, the sovereignty of grace into something as an excuse for them to just go on. But the Bible nowhere says you can do that. No, what this truth means, the truth that the Lord Jesus Christ applies salvation to sinners by His Holy Spirit. What this truth means is that all of us, children from the youngest to the oldest, 
no matter how sinful we are, no matter how, what, what sins we have done, we can and we must go to Christ now, today. That's what this is saying. He is the way of salvation. He is the only way. The timing of Christ pouring out His Spirit confirms that. It calls us to go to Jesus Christ. Do you see that with me? And are you looking to Christ? Are you looking to Christ for all your salvation? Are you trusting in Him? The gospel congregation, the good news of salvation in Christ is for real. It's true. It's true. You say, I don't see any proof of that when I look at so many people who call themselves Christians. Maybe so. Maybe so. But that doesn't mean Christ has failed. That doesn't mean the gospel is untrue. It may mean that such people are not really Christians after all, even though they claim to be. It may may mean they're backsliding and they need to repent. But aside from all that, it's really not your business to criticize them if you have not come to Christ yourself. If you're not looking to Him yourself, your business, your calling, each of our callings is to stop looking to other people and start looking to Christ. To come to Christ ourselves. To repent of our unbelief. To repent of our doubt. To repent of our distrust. To believe, to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and to keep trusting Him all all our life long. And the promise is you shall be saved. You see what an encouragement this is also to to you dear struggling people of God. We live still in a broken world, yes. A world so, so full of suffering. We live in an ungodly and a hostile world. Some of you experience that more. The hostility in places, in places that should be places of healing and help. We struggle with sin, but But you see what this is saying? Don't lose hope. The Spirit's outpouring at Pentecost confirms that the gospel is true. Salvation in Christ is real. He's obtained salvation for sinners. And He applies salvation to sinners too. That's what the Spirit's outpouring at Pentecost is telling you. And it's calling us then to hold on to Christ, to keep trusting, to keep trusting every single moment, every day again, and to follow, follow Him. But it's not just the timing that confirms the truth of the gospel. It's also the signs that come with it. We see that as we come now to our second point, the gospel confirming signs. As the disciples, probably probably the 120 disciples, it may have been just the 11, it doesn't specifically tell us, but in Acts 1 we read that there were 120 disciples praying together. And so it was probably these 120 as they were with one accord in one place, praying together for the Spirit's outpouring that Christ had promised before He ascended. And something happens. Something happens. Look at verses 2 and 3. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. What amazing signs out-of-this-world signs, really. A sound, a sound from heaven of a mighty rushing wind filling the whole house. Imagine. Yeah. And then cloven or divided tongues, like tongues of fire sitting upon each of them. What, what do they mean? What, what, what are these signs telling us? Well, let's look at them one at a time. Imagine, let's just try and put ourselves there. Imagine children being in this room, 
with these, with these disciples. One moment it's quiet and maybe you, all you hear is the sound of someone fervently pouring out their heart to God, praying, praying for the, the outpouring of the Spirit. And then all of a sudden there's, there's a sound that comes from heaven, the sound of a mighty, a violent, a rushing wind. The word for sound here is sometimes used to describe a, a kind of a, a roaring sound. So it wasn't really like the sound of a, 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 of a gentle breeze, but, but it was a, or, or even a sound of you know, the, how the Alberta winds can whip around the, your house. It wasn't really even that kind of sound. It was, it was a, a roaring sound, like the sound of waves roaring and crashing against each other. Or, or maybe if you go to a waterfall, the kind of sound you might hear from a mighty waterfall, a roaring sound. Imagine hearing that, being in his house and hearing this, this, this sudden sound. It was so quiet, the house that was so quiet a moment ago, it would probably be frightening, wouldn't it, children? Imagine if that happened right now. Did <gasps> you think a tornado was coming? Or a freak storm? You, you, you might try to plug your ears, or, or you might try to brace yourself. You, you almost expect the house to be just flattened. It was the sound of a wind, a mighty rushing wind from heaven something kind of like a downburst. Some years ago when I lived in Ontario, we, we were eating dinner one, one evening, and it was storming outside, and uh, there was even a tornado warning out at the time. And all of a sudden, we, we had this big, kind of a half-dead tree in the, in the front yard, and all of a sudden, the tree just snapped right out of its base. It came crashing down on the, on the yard. What had happened? It wasn't a tornado. It was, it was actually a downburst, an intense, downward, sudden burst of air from, from a cloud that had, that had hit the ground so that the air was, was forced to spread in, in every direction. From what I read, some of those downburst winds can reach 160 kilometers per hour. It's a, it's a picture of power, you see. And that's, that's really the, the picture here. Only it wasn't actually a wind, was it? It was a sound, just a sound like it. But you can imagine hearing the sound. You're, you're ready for the walls to fall flat, but they don't. The text tells us that the sound, the sudden sound from heaven of a mighty rushing wind, the sound of power, it didn't flatten the house, but it filled, it filled all the house where they were sitting. What, what does it mean? Why is this sign mentioned in our text? Why, why doesn't Luke just tell us that the Holy Spirit came and filled the disciples and that they preached the gospel, the good news of salvation in Christ? Well, at least one reason our text includes this sign is to confirm to us and assure us that the gospel that the disciples were about to proclaim, the gospel concerning Jesus Christ and the gospel that you and I can read in the Bible and hear preached in this church, it's the very power of God. The gospel is not man's idea. It's not the invention of the disciples. Christianity is not just another man-made religion. It's God's religion. It's the one true religion. The gospel is for real. It's from heaven. From heaven. The text emphasizes the sound was came from heaven. And it's the gracious power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. That's what the sign is telling us. It's the power of God. It's the power by which He comes and He breathes spiritual life into people who are by nature, which all of us are, are spiritually dead, dead in sins and trespasses, and enabling them even to be His witnesses. 
The sound of this wind congregation is another confirmation that the gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ is true. It's real. It's from God. And the lesson is for us how important it is, how important it is not to ignore it. Not to neglect it. Not to reject it. Not to continue in sin, but to repent and to turn to God in faith and submission. Where are you in this? What about the second sign? Verse 3 tells us that the cloven tongues or divided tongues as a fire appeared unto and sat upon each of them. This may be a little harder to imagine, but, but let's try. Imagine sitting in this house, this room, with, a, with 120 disciples, probably everybody's looking a little uns, unsure, looking amazed, maybe a little afraid at the sound they've been hearing, but then they see something. They see something. There appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, something that looked like, like forked tongues of flame, forked flames dividing and, and, and sitting on each of them. But these, whatever they were, that looked like tongues of fire, they don't burn anything, they don't singe The disciples' hair, they just sit there. What's it mean? Well, in the Old Testament, fire was a symbol of God's presence. You can think of of when God spoke to Moses in the wilderness. Where did he speak to him out of? Do you know, children? He spoke to him out of a burning bush. Or you can think of how God led the children of Israel by by night after he brought them out of Egypt. He led them by a pillar of fire. Or you can think of how God spoke to Israel, how he spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai. Where did he speak from? He spoke from the midst of the fire. Fire symbolizes God's presence. And so what the sign is telling us is that these disciples who are about to be filled with the Holy Spirit and are about to preach the gospel are not people that we can safely choose to ignore. They are Christ's ambassadors. Their message, the gospel message that they proclaim is God's message. Their word, the word of reconciliation with God is God's word. And when they preach the gospel, they are representing God. God. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. You see, the cloven tongues, the the, the fire sitting on these disciples tells us that the gospel they proclaim, the gospel message that Peter proclaims in the verses after this is, is for real. The gospel message in God's word is for real. It's God's message. He is present in the proclamation of the gospel. And that means, congregation, that the gospel, the good news of salvation in and through Jesus Christ is not something you and I can safely ignore. It's not something we can safely reject or twist. We don't come to hear the gospel to be entertained. It's serious serious. Remember what John the Baptist said about Jesus Christ in Luke 3 verse 16. He will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. 
Then he said this, whose fan is in his hand and will thoroughly purge his floor, will gather the wheat into his garner, into his barns, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Do you hear the call then? Do you hear the call with, with these signs, these signs with the Spirit's outpouring? The call is don't reject, don't despise, don't neglect the gospel, but believe it, believe it. Call on the name of the Lord. Whatever it is that's keeping you from the gospel, throw it aside, throw it away, and come to Christ. Call on His name and trust yourself to Him, and you shall be saved. The gospel is for real. The signs that the came with the Spirit's outpouring confirm it. But there's one more thing. There's one more thing about this event that's so gospel confirming. Not just the timing, not just the signs, but lastly also the result. The result of the Spirit's outpouring. Verse 4 tells us, these disciples were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. How many of them? How many of the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit? Children, do you know? Some of them? All of them. All the disciples. Luke's been emphasizing that actually. Verse 1, they were all with one accord in one place. Verse 2, the sound filled all the house where they were sitting. Verse 3, the tongues like as a fire sat upon each of them. And now verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And congregation, that, that already is incredibly Gospel confirming. It confirms the gospel promise. The gospel promise that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Think about who some of these disciples were. Think about the eleven. What did they do? What did they do less than three months earlier? They'd all run, fled, forsaken Jesus Christ. In the garden, Peter had even denied him three times. Thomas had doubted him. Do you see, here are these disciples. And what happens? They are filled with the Holy Spirit, all of them. And that tells us something, congregation. That tells us that the gospel is true. Salvation, yes, free, full salvation really is in and through Christ alone. It's by grace alone. Oh, what an encouragement that is. What an encouragement it should be when we see our sins, when we're broken by our sins, when we're battered and bruised by our sins and sinfulness. It can be so discouraging sometimes, can it? You're tempted to wonder, is it really true? Is it really grace? Is it really grace for someone like me? So your question today. Yes, there is. There is. This is God's answer to you from our text. You see all your failures. You see all your sins. And you think, how can I ever be saved? But who did the Holy Spirit fill? He didn't fill super saints. He filled men and women like you and me who had nothing in themselves but who were looking simply to Christ, who were trusting in Christ. He filled them completely. You see, it tells us that His grace 
It, it covers all. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done. But you say, how do I know? How do I know God really means the gospel promises for me? Do you wonder that sometimes? You struggle with that question. Look at what happened to the, to the disciples in our text. What happened when the Holy Spirit filled them? They began to speak with other tongues. It's a miracle. They began to speak with other, in other languages. Why? Why? So that the gospel would be made known and would be proclaimed far and wide. That's what happens. Verse 6 tells us that Jews from every nation, they had come to, this, 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 to Jerusalem for, this, for Pentecost, for this feast, they, and they came together when they, when they heard what was going on, and every man heard the disciples speak in his own language. And what were they speaking about? What were they talking about? Verse 11 tells us they were speaking the wonderful works of God. And that led in turn then to, as they asked, well, what does this mean? That led to Peter's sermon where he preached the gospel, the gospel concerning Jesus Christ. And God blessed that sermon so that these people, people of different languages and, and from different places, yes, they were still Jews at that time, but, but you read through the rest of the Acts and it goes all over the world. But here's the, the start of it. God blessed that sermon so that they were cut to the heart as they were convicted of their sins. And they cried out, what shall we do? And Peter told them, what did he tell them? Did he tell them, you need to make sure the gospel promises are for you? No. He told them, repent. Turn away from your sins. Turn away from your unbelief. Turn away from your doubt and your distrust. And turn to God in faith. And be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission, the forgiveness of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is unto you. This isn't boring, congregation. This shouldn't be boring. It's life. It's your life. The promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. The promise is unto you. Children, do you know how many responded by the grace of God? How many believed that promise and repented of their sins and were baptized that day? You look at verse 41. 3,000 souls. 3,000 people gladly received the gospel word that Peter had proclaimed. 120 before this. 3,000, 25 times. The Lord did not turn any one of them away. The gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ is for real. Not just for some people, but for all people. People of every tribe and tongue and nation. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. Do you, do you see how gospel confirming the event of the Spirit's outpouring is the timing, the signs, the results. It's all here to confirm to us that the gospel is for real. It's true. It's not a joke. It's not a lie. It's the word of God, the God who cannot lie. And the question is, then, what is your response? What is your response? O congregation, let it be that we do not forsake 
and that we do not ignore, and that we do not deny, and we do not neglect or reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, but let it be like those 3,000 people who gladly received his words. Let us gladly receive it, and let us gladly hold on to it, and never let it go, never exchange it for anything, and let's proclaim it, proclaim it to those, to those around us, relying on Christ, looking to him in faith, the one who has poured out his spirit to fill his church and to enable us and to empower us to be his witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for including this account of the Spirit's outpouring at Pentecost, including the details, the timing, and the signs, and the blessed results. We pray, Father, that you would confirm the faith of your people through this word, and that through it also you would call those who have not yet embraced the gospel, they might come. And embrace it, gladly receive it, and be added to the church. Lord, we pray that you would bless us further in this day. And as we think of what happened at Pentecost, our souls were added. We also may look forward to seeing that you that you have continued that work, as we may look forward to seeing several people making confession of faith this afternoon, public confession of faith. Lord, we pray that you bless that service as well and that you be present among us. We pray that you would continue to increase that work. We do long, O oh Lord, to see more of that. Think of Elisha, how he, after Elijah was taken up into heaven, and he returned to the Jordan with the cloak of Elijah. And he said, where is the God of Elijah? Lord, can we not plead, even this day, where is the God of Pentecost? Will you come and increase your kingdom in great ways this day? Pray that you would forgive all that was sinful and bless us also as we worship you now in song. In Jesus' name, amen.